This morning's scripture is taken from Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Again, the text is Romans 8, verses 1 through 11, found on page 971 of the Pew Bibles. Hear now the word of the Lord. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, ho you however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, um, apart from your spirit, these are merely words on a page. Father, um, even as they are your sacred word, our hearts are hardened. Father, we hear what we want to hear. And Father, we need your spirit to pierce the callousness of our hearts, to bend our wills, to renew our affections. Oh, Father, I pray that you would subdue us. May we surrender before you, falling before words of hope, words of comfort, words that convict, words that equip us to be your servants, to be your sons and daughters, to be whom you have declared us to be, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we pray in the mighty and merciful name of the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who is full of might and mercy, our Lord Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> well, this uh, morning we're starting a new series as we have departed from Romans 12 through 15 as we're going through a series that talked about uh, the community life of God's people. We spoke of the idea of remembering the body as uh, these last two years have been, two, three years have been so challenging to stay together. 
It is that vision of Romans 12 through 15 that draws us together to be the people of God, to be one flesh, uh, one body together. And this summer, I want to follow that on by talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, specifically the, what's called the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So each Sunday, as throughout the summer, we'll be devoting to a particular aspect of the Spirit's work in our lives from Galatians 5. But before we actually jump into that and talk about the fruit of the Spirit, I want to talk a little bit this morning about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, to do that, I want to do that from Romans chapter 8. I won't be addressing all 11 verses, but uh, we'll, we'll, be, uh, we'll be looking at what uh, Linda has just uh, so capably read for us. And, and as we do so, um, let me just preface it with uh, a few thoughts here. When I was in high school as a kid, I would go shopping for clothes, and inevitably I would go with my mom because she was the one who had the money, right? She would pay for it. And uh, it, we would always end up having an argument. Because I wanted certain clothes, the, the clothes that were cool. I mean, the clothes that everyone else is wearing. And she had other ideas about the kinds of clothes I should get. And f so, for example, I wanted, this is the early 90s, I really wanted baggy jeans. And that was, the, what other jeans could you get? I mean, that was, I mean, this wasn't the 70s anymore, or the 80s. This was the 90s. And you'd have baggy jeans. And of course, you had a certain type of shoes. They were the Nike high tops. Those were the only acceptable shoe. So we would get into these arguments in the store. And, and, and why? Like, why would you argue over clothes for? Why was there so much at stake? <laughs> right? Well, it's because you've often heard this phrase, you are what you wear. You heard that phrase before? You are what we wear. How I dressed said something about me. I would say, Mom, I can't possibly wear that. I can't wear that. Why? Because it wasn't cool. It wasn't in style. Just listen to this. A new season called for a new style. A new decade. Mom, this is not the 60s. A new decade called for a new way to dress. What she wanted me to wear was out. Oh, mom, that's so, like, I hear my twins say it all the time. That's so 2000s, right? That's so 90s, whatever, right? That's so, oh, that's like last year, right? I mean, it's, that's, that's, that's forever ago. That's like prehistoric, right? This is, you have to be aware of the times. And if you can believe, if you can believe it, I'm sure you can, because I feel like, you know, social scientists have studied everything, Experts, researchers, psychologists have actually studied this phenomenon and have confirmed what we, already, what we all already know, sadly, that how we dress helps to shape others' opinions of us, right, wrong, good, or bad. And not only that, but how we dress even helps to shape our opinion of ourselves. Isn't that interesting? And even can shape what we, how, how we act. It's called, apparently it's called enclosed cognition, that when we wear something specifically, it actually shapes our own actions, how we talk, how we speak. For example, you kids, when you dress up in a costume for Halloween, what do you do, right? When you put on that Captain America outfit or you put on that ballerina dress, what do you start to do once you put it on? You start to act like Captain America, right? So there's a sense in which what we put on actually shapes how we think of ourselves and how we begin to act. Now, some of you remember this. I didn't actually happen to find this on the, on the internet. But um, apparently, from 2003 to 2013, there was a TV show 
that ran on, on cable TV called What Not to Wear. I don't know if you, you were familiar with this or not, but it was called What Not to Wear. There were two hosts, and they would, uh, there would be a participant, a person who was nominated usually by their family and friends because they were apparently very poor at dressing. And in fact, it was so bad that their friends and family figured that there needed to be like an intervention, and they would nominate them unwittingly to this show, What Not to Wear. And so the two hosts would, would, would go to this person, they would approach them, and they would offer to fly him or her, and I think as the seasons went on, it was pretty much a her, which I think is interesting. But um, they would offer her to, f- they would offer to fly her to New York City. They would give her $5,000 to go shopping for a brand new wardrobe. Now, if, this is a big if, if she got rid of her old wardrobe, putting off the old, right? like leaving behind the old, throwing it away, and following certain rules that they gave her about what she should buy. And what's interesting is that these rules supposedly were clothes that were best for her. They were clothes that were two things, truest to the real, the real you. And interesting. The idea was that previous wardrobe actually wasn't true to who they were, wasn't true to their body shape, wasn't true to how they carried themselves, it wasn't true to their profession. It wasn't really them. And so the first rule was like, you need to buy clothes that are, are true to your body shape, to true to your profession, to true, true as to who you really are, the real you. And the second thing, it were, the second rule was this, that you had to buy clothes that were truest to the current style or to the, the current state of fashion. So it was both about rediscovering who you really were and also about, listen to this, about understanding the times, the time frame that we were living in. So it wasn't yesterday. Things have moved on and now this is where we are. Now in scripture, it's is interesting, character qualities are often compared to close. If you would, just turn to the right a little bit to Romans chapter 13. We actually see this illustrated elsewhere in, uh, in, the, in, in, in the book of uh, Romans. We're going to look to uh, Romans chapter 13, <clears throat> verse 12. This is on page 976 of your pew Bible, on 976. Chapter 13, the very end, look at verse 12. The night is nearly over. See that, see that chronological, that temporal, that, tempor- that temporal aspect, the sense of Hey, that was then, this is now. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and what? Put on the armor of light. And he makes a contrast. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness. And he goes on. Verse 14, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Turn to the right just a little further to the book of Colossians. There's another book of the Apostle Paul's, the book of Colossians. It's to Colossians chapter 3. It's on page 1016 of your pew Bible, 1016. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. It's a wonderful exhortation that Paul gives here. He says, therefore, again, I'm sorry, 1017, I apologize. 1017, Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, 
in patience. In fact, elsewhere, and we won't take the time to go there, the book of Revelation speaks of how, it speaks of God's people and their, their, their righteous acts as clothing, as white clothing. And so to speak of how that at the end of time the bride is given clothes to wear, white, uh, white, beautiful white clothes to wear, and it says those white clothes are the righteous deeds of the saints. In fact, it's so important is this idea of clothing that Jesus has a parable in Matthew 22 where he speaks of a king giving a great banquet, a wedding banquet. And at the banquet, even though he sends out many invitations, only a few guests come. In fact, he has to force the guests to come. And one of the guests, as he comes into the actual, uh, the actual banquet, he sees, he's surveying the guests, and he notices a particular guest, and that guest is not wearing the right clothes. And the idea is very simple, but very powerful. That to be a part of God's people, to be truly called, to be invited and belong in the banquet, you have to have the right clothes. You have to have a changed life. It's not just simply good enough to verbally, orally say, hey, you know, I'm a Christian. There has to be a putting off of the old and a putting on of the new. Do you know what a capsule wardrobe is? I didn't know what a capsule wardrobe is. It's probably obvious that I don't know what a capsule wardrobe is because I'm not very, I'm not very uh, fashionable. But I didn't know what it was. But apparently this is what it is. My wife informed me of this, so I appreciate the analogy here. When, 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 you, when you go shopping for clothes, when I go shopping for clothes, I do it all wrong. You know why? I go shopping and I go, uh, oh, that's a great tie. And I buy the tie. And I go, oh, that's a great shirt. And I buy the shirt. And oh, those, those pants are pretty cool. I'm buy, and those shoes, oh, and I just see these separate individual items. But then I get home and what? They don't actually match. They don't work together. And a capsule wardrobe, according to one fashion website, uh, a, a, a capsule wardrobe is a wardrobe, it's a, it's, it's, sorry, it's a, cap, a, a capsule wardrobe is a limited selection of interchangeable clothing pieces that complement each other. These are often classic pieces that do not go out of style and are primarily composed of, of neutral colors. A capsule wardrobe allows you to create a variety of different outfits with a small selection of clothes. So gang, this summer from Galatians 5, we're going to discover the capsule wardrobe of the kingdom. We're going to look at various character qualities. We're going to try on, try them on. Oh, love. Oh, joy. Peace, kindness, patience, faithfulness, self-control. We're going to try them on. And we're going to see that they form a wardrobe that complements and that actually fits the season. It fits the era in which the world's arrived with the coming of Christ. And I was sorry, it was interesting as I was reading up on this TV show, What Not to Wear, I came across a few uh, interesting, more behind-the-scenes aspects of the show. One is that some people, when the host would come to them and make the offer, they were nominated by their friends and family, the host would go to them and make this offer. I mean, New York City, five days, five grand. I mean, come on. It was interesting to see how many of them said no. Like, no, it's not interested. Yeah, my, every, everyone's telling me I have no fashion. I'm good. Isn't that interesting? 
human nature. The second thing, according to one article, the show, listen to this, the show, quote, forced participants to address deep-seated psychological issues. Now, one of them, you think, that's still silly. It's just clothing. But think about it at a deeper level. When clothing reflects who we are, or in fact, clothing may, re- may reflect who, who we would like to be, right? How many of you had times where you've seen a, you know, a really cool suit or a dress or something, and you think, oh, that'd be so great. And then you look in the mirror and go, nope. Nope, can't happen. In fact, not only can it happen, it's never going to happen. And it's just despairing. It's discouraging. And you wonder, is there anything I could ever do to change so I could wear that? This summer, as we try on the wardrobe of the kingdom, there are going to be times you're going to be like, oh, that's beautiful. I hope so. I hope this summer you fall in love with the, the, the fruit of the Spirit. We just think, oh, to be faithful. Oh, to be joyful and not just be a grouch around the house all the time. Oh, but then you think, there's no way. So I want to warn you, okay? I want to warn you. On the one hand, we're going to hopefully fall in love with the fashion, the costumes of the kingdom. But on the other hand, listen to this. We're going to learn more about ourselves. We're going to see that as we try on these clothes, some deeper issues are going to come out. And that's okay. It's going to be hard, but it's going to be okay. Because we're actually going to talk about those, and there are going to be occasions for us to actually grow. So listen, this is the key point here. As, as this summer, as we go through these things, we're going to try them on, we're going to see that there's going to be some stuff's going to come out. And, and that's a good thing. It's a really good thing. And here's why. Here, listen to this. As we walk through the fruit of the Spirit, I hope three things will happen. First, it will awaken us to the dignity of humanity. We will see how noble, how beautiful, how wonderfully glorious that we can be, that we're called to be as humans, as believers, a new humanity, a renewed humanity. This is who we were meant to be all along. This is our real self. See, when Christianity began to just spread throughout the Roman Empire in the earliest centuries, uh, just following the life of Christ, one of the ways that Christianity would have just shocked people, I mean, totally surprised them, taken them off guard, was the way that Christianity was so demanding ethically. So many of the various cults and religions of the Roman Empire, they just didn't, there weren't many ethical, you just didn't have to do much. There weren't these high ethical standards. And Christianity blew people away by what it expected of them. Right? To love your neighbor? I mean, just anybody? Anyone who comes across your path. And we recite that summary of the law almost every Sunday. We're like, yeah, love your neighbor. But that that blew people away. I mean, my neighbor's a jerk. What, you want me to love him? Why would I do that for? It's not even loving your enemy. It's loving, I'm sorry, not even just loving your neighbor. It's loving your enemy. You gotta be kidding me. What what is this what is Jesus on? That he would actually want me to help and care for and bless and love and feed and clothe the one who wants to do me ill. The, the norms of sexuality just were just so unrealistic. Like Jesus says, what about sexuality? What is Paul saying? 
And so the Christians, the Christian ethic, listen to this, it led to lives lived in ways that were truly extraordinary. And not only were they truly extraordinary, they were truly head-turning. They got people's attentions. They were attractive. Now, some of you, wow, some of you in the last four years have walked with you through such hardship, such trials, such loss, and you've done so in the power of the Spirit, displaying the fruit of the Spirit. And let me tell you, your lives are beautiful, just beautiful. So awesome. It's, such a, it's one of the best parts about being a pastor. Sometimes I grab the popcorn and I just watch God at work in the lives of people who are struggling quietly, often unknown, unseen by the world. It's not going to be on CNN or Fox News. But your Heavenly Father sees and He smiles. It's beautiful. We see the dignity, I hope, through that as we go through this series, it will awaken us to the dignity of our humanity. But as we also go through this series, it will awaken us to the depravity of humanity, like I've already hinted, right? As just as we see how noble we can be, we'll see how just incapable we can be. We'll be forced to come to terms with how little, how often, how little we want to change. I don't want to love those people. I don't want to be faithful. I don't want to be gentle. I mean, gentle's weak. That's pathetic. The real world calls for you. You gotta get up and you gotta level people. You gotta be a steamroller. Gentleness? Are you kidding me? My husband will never respond to gentleness. My wife will never respond to gentleness. That is not only, it's just I have no desire to do that. But even when we actually do desire, when we actually want to change, when we actually are attracted to the fruit of the Spirit, we see, again, we see that piece of clothing and go, oh, I would love to wear that. When we look in the mirror, we realize I'm too big, I'm too whatever, I'm too old, and I always will be, and who am I kidding? We'll come face to face with the fact that we, apart from ourselves, apart from, excuse me, excuse me, apart from the work of the Spirit, we cannot change. And we find that it just seems impossible. And we'll discover again how deep, deep-seated issues we have in our lives, issues that seem to never go away. And gang, I want you to hear this. This is key for this morning. Early Christianity held these two things together. It held the dignity, the nobility of humanity, the high calling to which we're called, and alongside the depravity of humanity. That's an incredible thing. This is amazing. It's beautiful. There is no way it's going to happen. Right? And what's so amazing, in holding those two things together, it led to something, to a third thing that I hope that we see this summer. Not only the dignity of humanity, not only the depravity of humanity, but those two things held together will lead to a renewed mercy towards humanity. So when we look at our own lives and think, you know what? There's no way I can change. When we see how hard, how impossible it is for us to change, and when we realize that underlying our inability to live lives of love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, etc., underlying those things are deeper issues we begin to be far less judgmental of others. Far less. What's their major malfunction? What's wrong with them? I don't struggle with that. I'm better than they are. No, that stops. Because like, listen, I'm not one to talk. I have my own issues. And there's a mercy, a compassion that begins to form 
And when we see these three things working together, a dignity, the depravity, and a mercy, we begin to ask an incredibly important question. If I'm called to live a life of dignity, but I'm hopelessly in the chains of depravity, then how can I change? Where can I get the strength to put off the depravity and to put on the dignity? Listen, Christian, if you are not at least on occasion, if not regularly, feeling as though change is impossible, I'm not sure you're living the Christian life. If you're not confronted regularly with just the sense that I am so stubborn, I am so loveless, and it's not a wonderful thing to feel, that's not God wants you there, but it's not to be discouraged just to say something's wrong with me as a Christian. In fact, if you feel powerless at times, that is evidence that you actually have the Spirit at work in your life. That you're not just deceived and thinking, I got this, no problem. The Christian who just says, you know, this is Christian life thing's fairly easy, has not begun, has not began to begin to understand what the Christian life is about. Has not begun to reckon with both the dignity as well as the depravity of humanity. So Paul answers this question in Romans 8, 1 through 11. He answers this question of how, how, if I'm called to live a life of dignity, if I have all this depravity, how can I change? How can I do it? Let me just take a few minutes here. I want to explain some of the vocabulary here, excuse me, the vocabulary that Paul uses in Romans 8, 1 through 11. Paul is not easy to understand. We'll try to make our way, okay? Listen to what he says here. Uh, Let's look at a few terms that he uses in this section. First, he he speaks of law, the word law. Paul uses the word law in several ways here in Romans 8, 1 through 11. The first is that he uses the law as, as we were most familiar with it. He speaks of a group of rules based on an agreement. Let me say that again. A, ba- a group of rules based on an agreement. That's what he thinks of the law. He thinks of the law as commands that are governed by a covenant. They're rules rooted in a relationship. And they, for example, he thinks of the law a lot like wedding vows. Wedding vows, things that you promise to do, in a sense rules that you say, I am signing up for this in our marriage. And the more that we fulfill those vows, the better the relationship will go. And that's the whole goal of the law. The whole goal of the law is to bring blessing and flourishing and to, live to, 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 to lead us to the good life. Today, the law, we think of law as a bad thing. Law is a constraint. It's the opposite of law in our minds is freedom. But in Paul's world, the opposite of the law was lawlessness, was chaos. For Paul, the law is like a recipe, like a, like a good recipe for a meal, for a casserole or some sort of uh, entree. It's a recipe that organizes and ensures proper proportionality of good things. You've heard the phrase, too much of a good thing, or you, you taste something, oh, there's too much of something and there's too much salt, there's too much of whatever. When, when life is out of proportion, even those good things actually can harm us. In fact, that's the definition of a poison. It's when you have too much of something that otherwise is okay. Your body will naturally have arsenic come through it, through various foods we eat. If you have too much arsenic, guess what? You will die. Right? So the law is there. It's like a recipe that provides a proper proportionality to the good things in life. So that's the first way that Paul uses the law. The second way that Paul uses the law is to speak of like a chain reaction or a ripple effect 
or a dynamic at work. Think of how we use the word law and the phrase, the law of gravity. Right? If I hold a book and I drop it, what's going to happen? We all know there's chain reaction, the sense of this ripple effect of, 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 of events will happen. Paul speaks of the law in this sort of chain reaction type way. In fact, the Greek word namos is a lot like the English word rule. You can speak of the rules of the game, the, the, the commands that you're supposed to follow, but we can also speak of a rule of thumb or the exception to the rule. And there that word rule speaks of sort of a, a way that things work a dynamic, a ripple effect, a domino effect, and we'll see that in the opening verses here. Second, Paul, the way that Paul uses the word flesh. Paul can use the word flesh to speak of just bodily existence. It's the bodily part of who we are. In fact, we might say, look, it's Bruce in the flesh. That is, Bruce as seen by the eyes, right? In the Christmas carol that we all know and love, Heart the Herald Angels Sing, we, we sing, Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. It's this notion of, of embodied existence. That's the first way, but there's another way that Paul uses flesh in these verses. He uses the flesh as, as in this way, as life, life as governed by appearances, by what seems to be the case, life as ordered and, and, and organized by how things seem to be, by appearances, by pedigree, by performance, by the principles of this world. Think of, it, think of flesh here like a current, a current uh, of, of a river or an ocean. To live or walk according to the flesh is to simply go with the flow. When in Rome, do as the Romans right? When I, often when I, when I visit a hospital, I'm talking to various, um, just various patients and praying with them. I'll just ask about their story and their life, etc. And often the person will be elderly and, and they'll mention something that they did back then and they'll say, well, and it'll be different from these days, but then they'll say, well, that's just what you did then. Right? That's just what we all did. It's this going with the flow, living, walking according to the flesh. Is this idea that you just, again, go with the flow. And let me ask you, Christian, how much effort does it take to let the current take you? How hard is it to just go with the flow, to just follow your instincts, to do what comes naturally? It doesn't take much effort, does it? In fact, that is one of the central cultural wars of our day, to figure out what is natural. To do what comes naturally, is that really the real you? Is that really what is true? See, in our culture today, there's this war between thinking of of who I really am according to how I was made or is who I am according to my present mood. Is it how I was made? By a, creature, by, by a creator who knows me inside and out, who's called me to live a certain, according to a certain plan, a certain way of life? Is it according to how he's made or is it according to my present mood? And that's, that's the battle that's going on. And to live according to the present mood is absolutely 100% to walk according to the flesh. It is to listen to our immediate selves. And gang, i got to say this. I'm getting in trouble for saying this. But listen, 
In today's world, and this is, listen, this is especially true of women, especially young women, there is an astonishing confidence in how right we are. And why do I say this? In today's world, listen to this. I don't say that because they're women. This is not a sexist statement. I'm saying it because in today's world, you can't criticize women. You can't. I could stand up here all day and make fun of husbands. I could stand up here all day and make fun of fathers. What would happen if from this pulpit I started making fun of wives and women, wives and moms? Look at Hollywood. How often does Hollywood make fun of moms and women? I mean, dads, husbands, are the, our fathers are the, are the brunt of every manner of sitcom joke. And it's not like I'm wanting that for women. The question is, is it loving for, is it fair, is it, is it caring if the woman is actually beyond any sort of critique? Or is the woman's immediate instincts always right? And this has infiltrated the church in a big way. The difference between sermons on Father's Day and a sermons on Mother's Day. I mean, come on. I mean, I don't do, we don't do Mother's Day, Father's Day sermons here. But often people do. And on Mother's Day, it's what? The poor plight of the mother. And none of us are caring for her enough. Whereas the Father's Day sermon is what? Like, what's, your, what's wrong with you men? Right? And it's just, just literally, when are you going to get it together? And, and listen, listen, the whole point here is to say, wait a minute. If the human plight is marked by this struggle with flesh, by this life lived according to just going with the flow, going with your immediate mood, some, a, a flesh shared equally by men and women, and suddenly one, one of those genders becomes off limits, is that remotely loving at all? My recently, I was on the phone with a woman, and she just a very, was a very thoughtful older woman, and just a woman who invests herself in, in, in discipleship. And she just spoke of how difficult, unapproachable the young women are of her day. She says, I'm not any better than them. I realize I'm just as stubborn or whatever, but it's just so hard when they are, every, every voice in their culture is teaching them to go with, to trust your first instincts, to live according to your mood. But what if, listen to this, what if I choose, instead of living according to my mood, I choose to live according to how I was made? What if I choose to go against the flow? What if I choose to swim upstream? Where will we get the energy, the strength to do that? Well, Paul tells us, and it leads us to our, 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 our third item here. You've got the idea of law, the idea of flesh, and the idea of spirit. In Paul, spirit, generally, the spirit is something that animates something that motivates, empowers, or enables us. A spirit inspires. Are you with me? To inspire is to put a spirit, a motivation in someone. Right? When we're at a high school football game and we're wildly cheering. Why? Because we have team spirit. Right? Cheer. Even the various cheers. We have spirit. Yes, we do. We have spirit. How about you? Right? Now, we could also be on the high school football team acting wild. I'm sorry, we could also be at a high school football team, a game, acting wildly. Why? Because we've been drinking. And we've been drinking, what are they called? Spirits. Right? And why, why are they called spirits? Because they change your, your behavior. Right? 
And so the notion of team spirit, the notion of uh, the idea of spirits, in both, in fact, in both Greek, Hebrew and Greek, the word for spirit can also mean wind or breath. The idea is air in motion. And of course, how can we distinguish between a live person and an animal or from a, from a dead one? They're breathing, or they have life, they're animated. So listen to this. A spirit could be an internal attitude. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, I will, should I come to you with a spirit of gentleness? That is to say, a, a spirit, an internal attitude governed by the idea of gentleness. Or it could not just be an inter, internal attitude. Spirit could be a particular, an actual being. In the Gospels, we, we come across unclean spirits that possess or alter someone's behavior. But finally, as Paul's going to use it here, the spirit can be the spirit of God. The spirit who is the executor of the Father's will. The spirit who extends God's rule. How does he do that? By applying the redemption that the incarnate Son achieved. The spirit, listen to this, the spirit links us to Christ and then makes us like Christ. The spirit connects us to Christ and then conforms us to Christ. Let's just very briefly, I know I've been long here, but let's just very briefly walk through these verses, given those definitions of those words. He says there in verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is, it is impossible, he says, for you to be condemned. Why? Verse 2, because through Christ Jesus, the law, that is to say the ripple effect, that is to say the dynamic of the Spirit who gives life, has set you free from the law that is the dynamic of sin and death. And he's referring to a dynamic that's spoken of in the beginning of chapter 7. Look in chapter 7 here. He uses a very simple analogy. He speaks of the law of marriage. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that, a law has a, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law that binds her to him. He's making a very simple point. Paul's saying the law of marriage. You become an adulteress. You're bound to that marriage only how long? Until there's a death. And as soon as there's a death, there's no, there's no condemnation if you remarry. Does that make sense? It's a very simple idea. But the idea is this. That if, if you, if, the idea is that if, if the law, if the person's alive and the law is there, you're going to be condemned. But if you die, the law no longer applies to you. And that's where Paul goes on to say in verse, this is so awesome, in verse 4, so my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. You can't prosecute a dead man. And Paul is saying here that through the death of Christ, the law, the spirit of life, has made us like dead men. We cannot be condemned. We have been set free from any possibility of condemnation. And why is that? Why does, why does that happen? It's through, as he goes on to explain in chapter 8, verse 3 and 4, that he has been, that is Christ's death, that is his, his uh, act of his giving himself as a sin offering, that actually frees us so that we are no longer under the law. And why is that? Verse 4. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
Paul sees life after after we have died with Christ as being empowered and enabled by the Spirit. Let me just say in closing here, what, what, what does that life in the Spirit look like? First, it looks like a conviction of sin. When we have been convicted of sin to the point of confessing it to God and confessing it to others, that's when we know the Spirit is truly at work in our lives. And again, not just to God, but to others. We actually go to the people we have wronged. We let other people into our lives to help us. That's when we know the Spirit is really at work. So the first sign is confession. The second sign, listen to this, is community. Paul is addressing them collectively. He's saying together, walking in the Spirit. When I live my life, and I'm living apart from the people of God, not in fellowship, not in mutual confession, not in mutual encouragement, I am not walking according to the Spirit. You will hear me say this when, I, when we do the Lord's Supper. I will say the New Testament knows no such thing as a Lone Ranger Christian. We are sheep of a fold. We are children of a family. We are limbs of a branch. Right? We, are, we are individual stones of a temple. We are members of a body. And the way that God's Spirit works is through community. You know, listen to this, gang. I have never, in all my years of, I've had several pastor friends this, in my years of ministry, I have never had someone come to me in need of major counseling because of a sin issue in their life, because of hardships they're going through. Never have they come to me rich in community. Overwhelmingly, they have very little interaction. They're not in a small group. They're not walking with brothers and sisters in the Lord. Their lives are unknown, and they're trying to do the Christian life by themselves. So what, how is the Spirit? We know the Spirit's working how? Through confession, through community, and then finally, listen to this, through surrender. When we're actually willing to say, you know what, I don't know what's best. I don't know what I'm doing here. And instead of being in the driver's seat, we jump we sit shotgun. I don't want to be in control anymore. I don't trust myself. I need, some, I, need, I need someone to take the reins. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father.